Have you ever seen those pictures from a satellite up in the sky looking to the earth and, and how beautiful the earth looks? It's gorgeous. It's like unbelievable. But for those who live on this dusty earth, probably anywhere on the earth, but I'm going to talk more about us this morning, particularly the United States, it's been looking rather grim lately, hasn't it? Very grim. Very grim. Increased international turmoil, right? I mean, all over the place with terrorism, North Korea, ISIS, people blowing themselves up, using backpacks, using themselves, using cars and vans to run through crowds of people who are chopping and just running flat over them. All over the place. It's a mess out there internationally. There's political turmoil in countries like Iraq, in surrounding countries. Turkey last year, last summer, went through a great rebellion. To a great time. What about Venezuela this summer? The coup that has happened there. Turkey and Venezuela most recently. Not to mention the political turmoil here in this country. That hatred. That happens in Congress in session between the two aisles. You hear it on the news, you hear them bellyaching, bickering, hating with all the leader. Wonder why I don't get much done. So it's great political turmoil. And it's here at home as well as anywhere else in this world, amongst our own government. Speaking of turmoil, what about the social turmoil that we hear about in the news all the time? The tax on police in the last couple of years, the disrespect for authority. What about what just happened in Virginia last week? Charlottesville. What about the racism? What about the hatred? What about the violence? And last but not least, and you really don't hear much about this anymore, what about the moral or the immoral turmoil that's happening all over this world, and in particular our own country? Legalization of abortion, what back in the 70s. What about this past couple of years, redefining of marriage, where it includes men, marrying men, women, and women? No longer a country under God's design. What about other moral chaos, such as the LBGT movement and pushing of that agenda? And by the way, if you don't believe the way they do, you're bigoted, you're narrow-minded, you've got a problem. You're a hater. You see how you know it's now we're calling good evil and evil good. Right? It's just like the time of judgment. Because there's nothing new under the sun, is Think about it for a minute. Where everybody was doing what was right in their what? Own eyes. Before we get to Habakkuk, by the way, it's just the introduction for our scripture reading this morning. It's, it reminds me of Romans chapter 1. I want to read this one more time. Not the whole chapter, obviously, but just a section of it. We're getting in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer a society, a people, or a person, or a nation, no longer sees fit to acknowledge the existence of God. Verse 28, what that happens, God gives them over to depraved thinking. To depraved mind, the Bible says, which is a depraved, deprived way of thinking. To do those things that are what? Not proper. It all begins with seeing fit that, that God does not exist. There is not a creator. There's no design. Therefore, it's up to us to do what we want to do. 
being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip, slanders, haters of God. Wow. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. Here's one. Inventors of evil. We look and invent for ways to do evil. Verse 31, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, on and on and on. I believe we live in those days. I really do. I really do. And, and I, I fear getting up here because I feel like a Jeremiah or Habakkuk that gets up and where there's other prophets going, peace, peace, everywhere, peace. The truth is, no, no, evil, evil, everywhere there's evil. There's chaos, there's corruption. That's not all. There's turmoil in the church today. There's doctrinal turmoil. There's absence of repentance in preaching the gospel. There's the there's the promotion of easy believism. All you have to do is profess, and there's nothing to show as a result that oh, by the way, you're still a Christian. Let's just treat Jesus as the church policy in your back pocket, pull him out whenever you need him. The kind of attitude towards Christ. And that is not discipleship. That is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. No church discipline. When was the last time you heard a church going through church discipline because they love those people so much when they're in habitual sin they, they come together and deal with that person? Anybody hear that lately? Very rare. But yeah, yeah, the few. <laughs> but how rare is it? Not only is there doctrinal turmoil, there's moral turmoil, even in the church. Let me give you an example. Pew Research Council reports denominations such as PCUSA, don't confuse that with Presbyterian Church of America. They're good and conservative, they're evangelical. But PCUSA is a mainline denomination, along with Episcopal and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, have already sanctioned same-sex marriage. As a matter of fact, the United Methodists are not far behind. They're already debating it among themselves. But in some pockets, they already have a swelling group trying to support it and getting to, to change the United Methodist Church. So, as we look on the international scene, we see chaos. We look at our own nation, we see what? Chaos. We look at the church and we see what? Doctrinal and moral chaos, don't we? So everywhere you look, internationally, nationally, in a mainline church, is, is what I call a mess. No wonder Christians are crying out and asking questions like, why is there so much injustice? God, why aren't you doing something? God, do you see what's going on? Have you ever asked that? You kind of look at you watch the news, and I can only handle it for a few minutes, so i got to turn it off. And I'm like, it's almost like we see, God, do you know what's going on? Where are you at? Why do you tolerate it? Why are you silent? Why don't you do something about it? But you know what? These questions I'm asking have been asked for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Centuries before Christ, they were asked. And they were asked by the ancient prophet Habakkuk. So I want you to open your bodies to Habakkuk. Three chapters for three hours of sermon this morning. No. Chapter one, we're going to just read chapter one, verses one through five. I don't want us to stand together as we read God's word. We're going to look at Habakkuk. 
He looked around and saw all the turmoil. It, 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 he saw the turmoil in Judah. He saw the turmoil of the nations around him. He saw both the moral and the spiritual turmoil. Then he cried out to God. And so we begin in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And will you not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not see me. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out the burden. Verse 5, we have a response from God. Habakkuk looked among the nations, observed, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are all saying we are not. And when it looks to us as it did Habakkuk, that you are nowhere to be found, that you're not doing anything, you are doing something. You do it on an international scale, you do it on a national scale, and you're always working in your church. God, you are sovereign, you are alive, you are working, and we do not need to see it to believe it, because the word tells us so. You reveal to us through the book of Habakkuk that even when we do not see your hand, that does not mean you are not working. Therefore, the just shall live by faith in the God of the Bible, in Yahweh, and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God encourages us with the message of the Bible this day. As he needed it back then, we need it today. May we be strengthened to follow Christ all the more as a result of hearing the word this morning. May we be encouraged how to live today as a result of hearing and reading this, this precious, precious little prophet, this minor prophet. God, may our worship be enhanced as a result of these teachings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's amazing God's answer here, by the way. Our outline is simple. This is the three parts. Guess what? Chapters one, two, and three, right? That's pretty simple. The easel, by the way, is broken this morning. I did not know that I was going to use it, so I'm going to have to do it best I can just verbally, okay? So this is this following is going to be real simple. The first thing we're going to do is get the setting. You gotta understand the book of the back, and you gotta understand the historical setting, right? Or, or I'm gonna be a miss, or I could mislead you, or I will be misled. So we're gonna understand the historical setting. Then we're gonna simply, with simple survey, walk through chapters one, two, and three. Chapter one, I've labeled dialogue. The dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Chapter two, I call dictation because Habakkuk writes down what God has for him. And that we're gonna learn about the five woes he has for Babylon. And you're gonna find out a little bit how Babylon is involved in a great way. Finally, chapter three, I call doxology, worship, adoration, and praise. Okay? So you have this dialogue in chapter 1 between Habakkuk and God. You have Habakkuk dictating or writing down God's prophecy, his words concerning Babylon and the judgment to come upon them. And then it ends in chapter 3 with doxology. That's Habakkuk's response to the sovereignty of God and how God rises up and tears down nations to accomplish his will. Incredible. One of the purposes of this book, I really believe, is that 
God through the prophet Habakkuk would enlarge our understanding and view of who God is. Yes, God works on a personal level, but God also works on a national level, and he works on an international level. Why? Because of the song we sang this morning, this is his world, by the way. This is his world. So let me kind of give you a little setting to see what's going on here with the book of Habakkuk, kind of set the context for us this morning. What I'd like for you to do in order to do this is to turn to a historical book in the Old Testament, 2 Kings. So go ahead and turn there, chapter 22 this morning. 2 Kings, chapter 22. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. So if Samuel, move up one or two. If you're in Chronicles, move backwards. I'm going to get there. Sooner or later. Here we go. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 21. What I want to do is give you the national picture of what's going on. So, last week we were in the book of Jonah, remember? Jonah was a prophet to the northern tribe of Israel. By now, Habakkuk said, Israel's off the scene. Assyria came and destroyed the northern tribe. Okay? This is a hundred, about 150 years after the book of Jonah. And Jonah is now the prophet to Judah, the southern tribe. Northern tribe's off the scene. Here's now Judah. And is that, by the way, the very end of the existence of Judah? Okay? Of the king of the southern kingdom. So I want you to, I want us to trace the last couple of kings because it gives us really the context upon which Habakkuk is written. Chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years. So you got Manasseh, reigned 55 years. Look at verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord for 55 years. Okay. Let's go to verse 19. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned just two years. But I want you to notice something. Verse 20. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now I want you to go to chapter 22. The next king. King number 3. Josiah was 8 years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. He did right in the sight of the Lord. He had an evil king, two evil kings. Manasseh and, and, uh, and Ammon. A total of 57 years, and their reign was labeled as what? Evil. Then you had Josiah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he did it for 31 years. And, and for the rest of chapter 2, and in chapter 23, it talks about the Reformation that they had in Judah as a result of his leadership. The rest of it, they, they found the lost book. They became more under the law. They restored the covenant. They, they had reformed under him. If you read chapter 23. But after Josiah, it didn't last very long. They went right back to the evil ways. Right back to the evil ways. Chapter 23. In 28, 29, and 30, there's another king. Jehoahaz. He was 23 years old. He reigned only three months. But it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Then you had Jehoiakim, verse 34. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 37. And he reigned 11 years. So here you have these two kings. There's evil going at. You had Josiah. Reform came about. But it slips right back to what? Evil kings again. The rest of them are evil, by the way, from this point on. There's only a couple left. So that's what's happening on the national scene. So Habakkuk fits in Josiah's reign and then the evil reigns. Of verse chapter 23 of Jehovah has and Jehoiakim. Okay? So he's seeing this evil, but he remembers the reign of Josiah. 
is what we would say, those were the good old days. Right? You been there? We live in such a time it's a mess. It's a spiritual, moral mess. But you can remember 30, 40, 50 years ago, being at Old New York, and you left, it was much better then. We weren't nearly as evil. Sin wasn't as rampant, okay? So you can, we can really identify with and feel Habakkuk out here. Because you know where he's at now. Okay? So when you read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 of Habakkuk, he's crying out to God, why all the evil? Well, he's coming from the background that wasn't too long ago he was experiencing the reign of Josiah where he did what was right in the Lord. Now it's back to evil again. So you've got to really identify with Chapter 24, we see Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. And so you see what's going on on the national scene with Judah. Meanwhile, on the international scene, you got a switch of change in powers. It was Assyria and Egypt who were, who were the powers internationally. But if you read in chapter 23, because of time we won't, you're going to read that while Judah was a puppet to Egypt, Babylon... Okay, overran Egypt and Assyria, and Babylon became the powerhouse. And here you have little Judah kind of going back and forth. Egypt controlled them, and now Babylon controls them. So you got this chaos, not only internally in the nation of Judah, you got this chaos all around them internationally as world powers switched. And so you got to think for a minute. Habakkuk, in his mindset, is thinking, Judah is a mess. And that's what he's really crying out for, is his own country, his own people. But meanwhile, internationally, the powers are switching. And Babylon, by the way, was very violent, very corrupt, very domineering. They lived in great luxury, and they did it at anybody and everybody's expense. Let me... Let me Get you to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, by the way, is a contemporary of Habakkuk. He too lived during this time. We get a little more insight of what was going on, particularly inside Judah. Let me give you a sample of this. For example, Jeremiah 22, verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness, in his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. Who says, I will build myself a roofing house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. Do you become a king because you are competing in sea? Did you father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it will be well with him. He pled the cause of the affliction and need. Then it was mine. Not, is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes. That's what it means to know me. But you, verse 17, your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. Look at verse 18. Therefore, thus saith the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Josiah had reformed, but his son, the next king, did not. He did what was evil. You see what's coming up. Will they not lament for him? Alas, my brother, or alas, sister, they will not lament for him. His own people didn't like him so much they didn't even grieve when he died. He was such an evil man. See what's going on here? You see the setting in which Habakkuk is written? 
There's three chapters in this Bible, prophet. Let's go back to the back again. Go back to chapter one. I want to begin by just kind of looking at these chapters. Chapter by chapter. It's like a survey. We're not going to go too far in depth, but you're going to understand the book and the purpose of it when we're done with it. I want to begin with the dialogue between Habakkuk and God. We read a little bit about that to get started this morning. In verses 1 through 4, you have Habakkuk crying, and you have God speaking to him in chapter, in verse 5, excuse me. I love this. But I want to back up. This chapter is in basically three parts. Habakkuk cries out to God, verses 1 through 4. God answers 5 through 11. And then Habakkuk responds in verses 12 through 17. It's a real simple dialogue, back and forth. I like the word oracle, verse 1. He starts with this. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. The oracle means burden. The burden. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet saw. What was the burden? The burden of the sinfulness of his people. It was a burden to the prophet when he looked upon Judah and saw all the wickedness, the rampant sin, the violence, the hatred. Notice what it says. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet what? Saw. So as he saw, he looked, he saw this, and it was a burden to him. He grieved his spirit. One of the things I think is a, is a sign of God's heart is when God's people looks upon a society and his culture and they see the sinfulness and they grieve over it. They grieve over they weep. They weep over not only the sin but the lostness. When you look at God's church and you see this condition, you grieve over it. When you look at our country, you look at society, you look at our culture, and you see the wickedness and the hatred, does it cause you to grieve? Does it make sense? God, God grieves over the wickedness of sinners, their selfishness, their self-centeredness. I also believe this burden could have also included Habakkuk's knowledge of God calling Babylon to judge Judah. We'll get to that. But definitely the oracle, the burden which the prophet saw was the sinfulness of his own people. Verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk gives us insight into spiritual moral condition. Destruction, violence, wickedness. Verse 3. Why violence? Why? Look at verse 4. Here's the cause. Here's the reason why. The law is ignored. The law is ignored. When people ignore the law of God, what's the inevitable? What's going to happen? Violence and corruption are on the increase. This fits beautifully with Romans chapter 1. The word ignored in the Hebrew means paralyzed. Cool. No. When we become numb, we go God's law and it's just kind of cool. It's just there. Look at this We'll be on that. It's not even there anymore. We don't, want it. we don't want it in public square. We don't want it, right? Your society doesn't want it anymore. So it happens to a people, a nation, a denomination, even a church. Listen, listen verse 4. When we ignore the law of God, justice is never upheld. Why? Because the conscience becomes seared. The conscience becomes seared. The conscience is the moral compass 
by which a society functions. And when you take away the law of God, it becomes seared. It becomes callous to what God wants. Right? You see what I'm saying? God has given everyone a moral compass of conscience. For one reason, other than the sovereignty of God and God planting the United States in the sovereignty in this time in all of history, we began with some kind of moral compass because the founding fathers had some kind of respect. Even the other leaders, like Thomas Jefferson, at least had some kind of respect for the Bible. Even if not saved. There was something about the Ten Commandments. And by the way, there were other religious founding fathers, other founding fathers, excuse me, who, 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 who really were, were Christians. Some of them signed the Declaration of Independence. Some of them were not, but even those who did not at least had some kind of foundation respect for the body. That's all gone. Why? When you look at our society, when you look at a Charleston, when you look at a Charleston, when you look nationally at our country, what's happened? When you take God out of the picture, you take his law out of the picture. And God says, I'm going to give you over. Therefore, your conscience will be seated. Your moral compass with moral compass will go amiss. Even to the point where you begin creating ways to do evil. That's not good news, is it? But here's the thing. Church, this is where we live today. Listen, listen for a minute. I don't want you to right now get this depression, this depressed, this thing. This is a misery. This is this is terrible. Why do I have to live in this time? It's still be your time to live. Number one, this is the time God has to live. You were not birthed in that day by accident. God saw him. He had you in mind for the foundation of this world. And he made you alive in Christ sovereignly as well. So he's got you here now. And here's another thing. I'm going to jump into the game a little bit. That's a good thing. You can be in total peace and total comfort because God is working internationally. God is working nationally. And God is also working individually. That's how big God is. It's not just here or here to here. It's all over. It's big and small. See that? So to go to a prayer walk, it's small. It's small compared to what God's doing internationally, but God's sovereign over it all. He uses prayer as a means by which he accomplishes his will. And he moves his people to pray. God's ordained prayer as a means by which he wants to accomplish the salvation of souls. That's why we pray. God, if that's a means by which you want to do something that you've already ordained, then why don't I pray? Because he's the God of the means and the ends. He says, this is what I'm going to, this is what's going to happen, this is what I want. And by the way, to get that, prayer is a great means by which I want to accomplish that, which means it's you. It's the church. We are the ordinary means by which God does his work. And we can do it in small ways, knowing that God's in control of the international. Knowing that God is sovereignly in control of our nation and our country. We can go out there and do small things because God's got it all under control. 
wrong with that? But what if someone wants me over? What if somebody doesn't like my position on abortion or on this or on that? What if they don't want to hear the gospel and I die for it? Well, go ahead. Praise the Lord. You're alive. You're in heaven. You're end up there anyway. Threaten me with death. So what? Fast forward to chapter 2, verse 4. I want to show you something here. Okay, listen to this. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. The proud one, his soul is not right. Look at the second part of verse 4. Look at this hidden gem, this golden nugget. This is the gospel. But the righteous will live by faith. Live by faith. The righteous will not only believe sound doctrine, believe biblical doctrine, but they will live by it. They'll do it. They'll follow it. Because that's going to be their heart. So it's by faith we do these things. It's by faith you share the gospel. It's by faith you live differently than the world around you. It's by faith we do a prayer walk. It's by faith we do those things because we know God is doing something internationally, nationally, and yes, to us, in small ways. God's sovereign. See, so when you get to God's word, it's his revelation. And one of the primary purposes of revelation is to expand to his people just how enormous and big and thorough God's sovereignty is. I have still not yet grasped. So when you're doing a prayer walk, God's sovereign. Amen? All right. Let's back up for a second. I told you we're fast forward. Let's go back real quick. Okay? So, now I gotta find my notes again. Oh, forget me. No, we won't. So, what happens in a society when they're conscious? Oh, we kind of share where we're at in our country. And I don't just mean country, but I mean church. Okay? And I, with Habakkuk, I primarily want to go the church direction because it, though the church is not Israel, the church does not replace Israel, there are times where the church as God's people reflect are reflected in the life of Israel. Or we learn lessons from the life of Israel, the church does. Okay? You get that? Okay. But here's what happens when, when the moral compass gets perverted. When it arose, because verse 4, the law is ignored. Sin becomes more rampant. Self-centeredness, selfishness, pride, and hate become more prevalent. I'll stop right there. If you really want to get a good five-minute understanding of what's going on in our country, a biblical, Christ-centered understanding, go to Facebook, plug in John MacArthur. He gives a five-minute answer to a question that said that, I'm going to paraphrase the question, and it was this. John, can you give... A, a, a biblical, Christ-honoring answer to what's happened in Virginia, what's happening in our country. And he does an excellent job. Go to faith. If you're on Facebook, if not, go to the website, Grace Community Church, gty.org, and try to look for that. It's only five minutes and some odd seconds. Yeah, yeah. He'll do it a whole lot better than I can. Okay. What happens is this. Sin becomes more rampant. Self-centeredness begins to dominate selfishness, evil, hatred, violence, pride. And here's the wicked become the majority. Okay? 
The wicked become the majority and they fill seats of power. Not only in our country, not only in government, but how about churches? The leadership of churches. Hate becomes more prevalent. Eventually, evil outweighs and outnumbers the righteous. Verse 4, look at that. For the wicked surround the righteous. They get to a point where they overwhelm and overcome. But this says, verse 4, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out what? Perverted. There's no longer biblical discernment. The law is taken out. The moral compass begins to die, begins to erode. This is what happens and how evil begins to spread more and more. Justice becomes more and more corrupt. Meanwhile, the family structure deteriorates. Parents become friends instead of disciplining their children and being parents. And when children rebel, begin to disrespect authority. And now we have families no longer defined by being a mother and father, but two fathers or two mothers. See where we're at? You see why? And now I'm back to the relevant for us today. You basically see the same thing. I love the answer that God gives in verses 5 through 11. He tells Habakkuk, I am working. Professor tense. Now I'm going to work. What's he doing? We're going to learn that he's raising up Babylon. That's what he says. Verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, out of the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march through the earth to seize dwelling places, which is not theirs. I have to, I'm raising them up. Habakkuk, look beyond your borders. Look at the nations around you. Look at where I'm working. Look who I'm raising up, by the way, to deal with Judah, my own people. Now let's just go ahead and fast forward to, to his response and Habakkuk's response. This is also something. God, are you, verse 12, are you not everlasting? Oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, O oh Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O oh Rock, have established them to correct. He goes on and on. He is overwhelmed with God's answer to how God is going to deal with Judah. God is Let's go on to chapter 2. I said we're going to move through this quickly. Chapter 2, even more quickly. I love verse 1. I will stand after Habakkuk's done with his response of awe and going, Why God are you even operating? Here's, here's, here's Habakkuk. Listen to this. I know we're bad. Judah's bad, God, but these people, they're a whole lot worse than we are. You're going to raise this corrupt, violent, terrible group of people. They're nasty. Wicked, and you're raising them up to judge us, take us out, basically. Yeah. So we get to chapter two, verse one. The back goes to okay, I'm going to stand at my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I'm going to sit still. I'm going to keep watch, and I'm going to see what you're going to speak from here on out. And then God says. Write this down, verse 2. Write it down. Record this vision. Verse 2, the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision. Inscribe it on tablets. So we have Habakkuk's dictation for the rest of this chapter. And I love what Habakkuk says in chapter 2, verse 1 at the end. He goes, I, I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am approved. I want to hear you, God, and then reply. So he hears from God the rest of chapter 2. 
And then he replies to God in chapter 3. What does he say in the rest of chapter 2? He gives five woes. He's describing Babylon. People like God knows, woe upon them. So here's the picture. God judges all nations. He judges other nations. He judges the Babylonians. When it says, woe to him in verse 6, woe to him in verse 9, woe to him in verse 12, woe to him in verse 15, woe to him, says in verse 19, judgment, 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 judgment. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to judge them because of these five reasons. They basically are this. For intimidating and pretty terrible people. For intemperance, which means excess, overindulgence. For iniquity. For indignity, shaming people, disgracing them. And finally for idolatry, verse 19. So he gives these five woes to the nation of Babylon. So here's God. He's raising up Babylon, this wicked nation. Okay, He's lying to be themselves. They have no law, but Judah, who had the law, no longer had it anymore. We learned that early on in chapter 1. Okay, therefore the law is ignored. They were given the law and they ignored it. Okay, and so Judah's crying out on behalf of, Habakkuk's crying out on behalf of Judah saying, what's wrong with these people? God, don't you see what's going to deal with this? God says, I am. I'm raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and they're going to come and they're going to judge Judah. And when they're done, I'm eventually going to judge the Babylonians as well. And that's what chapter 2 is all about. Woe upon woe upon woe. So you see, it's kind of like, Habakkuk had to respond to this. Go to chapter 3. He prays. He prays. Verse 1. Chapter 3. The prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigadah. Stop right there. That simple word, shigadah, means to reel back and forth. You can see the back and reeling back and forth. He's, he's reeling. I have a burden for my own people, and then there's these Babylonians, which I can't stand. They're wicked than anybody. I am, he's reeling back and forth at first. So, so according to shigadah, then his soul said, it's real back and forth means your soul is what? Unsettled. That's what the word means, unsettled, going back and forth. And all of a sudden it settles. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Referring to chapter 2. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years. Make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk doesn't complain about God's wrath. He didn't argue with God about his wrath or judgment. He simply says this, in wrath, remember mercy. God, in your judgment, in your condemnation, would you please remember mercy? It's about the same. About to say this, I have settled that. God, you're God of both. You're the one being the creator who has the right to rise up, raise up nations and tear them down. You're the only one that has the right to judge whether it's your own people, Judah, Israel, or surrounding nations. God, you are God, and there is no other. Besides, you're the creator. You're the sustainer. You're involved in the international scene, you're involved in the national scene, and you're involved in small ways. The person. So, 
God in your wrath, please. Be merciful. You know what happens after this? This is nothing more. Chapter 3 is nothing more than a chapter of adoration and praise. A soul who is settled in the moment, in the midst of international, national, and even personal turmoil. See this? You see, the worship of God doesn't depend upon our circumstances or our situation. What's happening around us or even to us. His worship is solely based on who God is. We kind of love God conditionally when we worship Him conditionally. We really worship Him when things are going well and going right. But God, we learned through the prophet Habakkuk, when things are chaotic internationally, when things are chaotic nationally, when things are also chaotic in the church, when things are even chaotic in my own personal life, God, you are worthy of praise. Why does God say this? The fact that real quick when he began to pray, started off very unsettled, but then the peace of God came over him because they understood the sovereignty of God. And God, if you want to raise up Babylon, you are holy and righteous in doing that. If you want to show mercy, you are holy and right to do that. Because God is holy and just in all of his ways. In both big and small. And everywhere in between. Yes, the fact is was distressed. We're to be distressed. When you look at the wickedness of the society, the wickedness that's going on internationally, nationally, and even around you personally, we're going to be distressed. And what if, what if God's raising up North Korea to do something major on the scene of this planet? What if God's raising up Russia? We might not know it now, but we know God's doing something, even though we as a church don't see it right now. You know, we are given a little bit of an advantage through the revelation. Even some of the Old Testament prophecies and the rapture of the church and, and how things are going to come towards the tribulation period, right? We, we're given that. We have a little bit more to go with than the back of here. A lot of God's working. He's working internationally right now in moving the hearts of leaders and ultimately they fit his plan. He's working nationally in our country even though it's terrible. Okay? With all the violence, all the hatred, all the racism, all the whatever. Just fill it in. It's there. God is working. So don't let what is happening on the international scene, don't let what is happening on the national scene keep from you from doing what God wants you to do on the personal scene. Whether it's to share the gospel with the neighbor, a family member, or even to go to a prayer walk on Saturday morning you feel the confidence of God. That's your conviction. God is in control. We, we sometimes live as if God lost control of his creation. And no, let's say the Lord in that is screaming to us today. God is involved. He's not lost control. He is in absolute sovereign control over all things, nationally, internationally, and personally. Let's go to 16 through 19. We'll close with this. I love this part, by the way. Verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled, but the sound of my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones, and I 
and, and, and in my place and tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. Think of it. God just prophesied to them that Babylon's coming. Now Habakkuk has to wait for that day. Right? Now he's waiting. Oh my goodness, this is going to be terrible. Because God says it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. For the people to arise who will invade us. The very last phrase of verse 16. Think of verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, should fail, and the fields produce no food, drought, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, no food, and there be no cattle in the stalls, though those bad things happen, yet, verse 18, yet what? I will exalt the Lord. It's not going to keep me from worshiping and honoring God and doing what he wants me to do. The whole world could be going to hell in a handbasket, but I'm a child of God and I'm called to worship Him no matter what. So no matter how bad it gets internationally, no matter how bad it gets nationally, no matter how bad it gets around me, what? I'm going to exalt the Lord. Go back to chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. What we read in chapter 2, verse 4, we see in the life of Habakkuk, chapter 3. <clears throat> He is living this faith. Prayer is living your faith. Not praying is not living out your faith. Right? Because we pray by faith. Prayer is a barometer of the trust of God. So if you pray little, trust me. The more you pray, the more you show your reliance upon God. It's trust, faith. Your body is clean. Just in the back of two four, but in the book of Romans, the just shall live by faith. And the key to prayer comes with repentance from your good works and turning to Jesus Christ alone with his righteousness and his blood for salvation. And prayer flows from your relationship with Jesus Christ. Prayer is an outgrowth or flow from your personal relationship with Him. And so I love when Paul in Romans chapter 1 begins this great dissertation of the gospel. He pulls out this golden nugget from Habakkuk 2.4 and he quotes it, the just shall live by faith. It's a walk. Not just a belief, an intellectual exercise or I believe in these facts or these truths about Jesus, my footsteps I actually want to begin to experience and walk in them. I want to begin to do what he says. This is the Great Commission, by the way, I'm discussing that with Tim and that with Dove and a few others Tuesday morning. We're talking about the Great Commission is to make disciples, and Jesus says, to teach them to observe all that I've done. Well, put that the practice is partly like the back of the church. Though these things are happening, God, the drought, the things are terrible, yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Get this picture, he will rejoice. The chaos international, the chaos national, the chaos in the church cannot quench my joy in the Lord. I can still be a very contented, happy person because I'm a child of God. I will exalt him, I will rejoice in him. You're taken care of. You are sovereignly secure. And, and though this body 
is getting weaker, and no one is going to be destroyed. No one can touch your soul, Jesus. No one. We are so secure in Christ that you free us to do, free us not to do whatever God calls us to do. And if it results in death, praise God. Praise God. Who is it? Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of God is the death of one of his saints. It's precious to our God. You know why? It's his saying, it's time for you to come home to be with him. We'll be, I don't know this, this is theologically correct, but we'll just be more alive in heaven than we are on earth. We're going to be given a new body. I never going to have to fight against my own, I'll never fight against my own flesh. My own sinful thoughts anymore. We won't even be on the radar. That's a little hard for me to understand. Because I fight every day. Right? It's like you, you, you fight every day. Verse 19, the Lord is my strength. He has made my feet like God's feet. He makes me walk on high places. I am a child of the king. And although all this chaos is going around me, I'm in God's group. He has me. I am a child of the sovereign don't forget that when you watch the news don't forget that when you hear about what's happening on the international scene don't forget that when you hear what's happening to our nation and don't forget that when you look at the church and see that it's really really hurting more than anything and God bless you with these things and come back to this world and you go in peace